The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Welcome to the True Tone Lounge. I'm Zach Childs, and you just heard Al Perkins play. Welcome. Thank you very much, Zach. Uh, I uh, was, you know, of course, looking up some information on you, and uh, you know, just a short list of some of the people you've played with include the Eagles, mm -hmm. the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. the Beach Boys, Guilty, Garth Brooks, Emmylou Harris, mm -hmm. Graham Parsons, James Taylor, Randy Newman, Leonard Cohen. John Denver and Dolly Parton, just to name a few. <laughs> yeah. So, so how does a, the other. Well, how does a kid from Texas uh, end up playing with all these cats? Boy, um, you know, I, I went out to California to try to record with a group called uh, the Sparkles. Went out there and got with a, a manager that uh, wanted us to dress alike and do steps and put us in the posh clubs like the warehouse, you know, there in Hollywood. And uh, that didn't really develop into a recording scenario, you know. So I came back to Texas and started playing with a little group uh, that said they wanted to go to California. 
And they became complacent, making good money in clubs in Dallas and Houston and stuff in Texas. And while I was in Dallas, Mickey Jones came through and saw us playing at a little club. And at the time, the group had heard I'd played steel guitar. That was my first instrument, you know, yeah. growing up. <clears throat> tell us, tell us who Mickey Jones is, real quick. For okay, those Mickey who don't Jones know. is uh, was the drummer for the first edition with Kenny Rogers. With Kenny Rogers, before that, he played with Dylan and uh, Trini Lopez. Yeah. He he played on the uh, on the electric tour with with Dylan, played yeah, drums. Yeah, okay. he did. I yeah. think for, I don't know what the situation was. I'd have to ask him, but. Somehow the other guy got sick or something like that. Yeah, it was Le Levon Helm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, from the band. He, cool. uh, he he backed out. Yeah, okay. So. I never met Levon, but I, I, yeah. I know the band for sure. And so um, he went, he, he, I was playing this little uh, club, and the stage was so small that to put a steel guitar on, they had to put a little, little uh, round, half round extension on my side that goes into the dance floor, which was pretty small too. But usually on the weekends stuff, it was packed. So here that little steel guitar was sitting out there and I'd go out and play it a couple of times a set, you know, where um, just for novelty. I mean, I'd play it on things that never even had steel guitar, like Johnny Cash songs or mm -hmm. something, you know, so just for novelty, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so Mickey came in there and went back and told uh, uh, Kenny and they were kind of looking to have a long hair steel guitar player work some with them, I think, at the time. But moreover, he was producing a group that became Shiloh out of East Texas. And that was uh, the Bowden cousins and Jim Ed Norman and, and Don Henley. And so uh, just, <clears throat> just for, you know, Jim Ed Norman ended up being the head of, of Warner Brothers, yeah. you know, Warner Brothers Records. Yeah. And then, of course, Don Henley ended up, you know, having yeah. a career in a band and then yeah. a solo career of some He's kind. He's still struggling, but he'll yeah. make it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, he wanted to tell the group that there was a steel guitar player. So they started coming in. They would be playing these frat parties and stuff in the Dallas area. They lived up in uh, the Piney Woods of Texas, which was... I don't know, hour and some odd from Dallas. So when they'd come through town and get through, they'd come over to the club, and they came over several times, and they, and mind you, these guys wanted to dance and drink and dance and all the time, you know, in this little club, but these guys would come there and just stand around that little island that they had for the steel guitar waiting for me to play the steel, you know. And they were just st staring at yeah, you play just, and yeah, instead just of dancing with the girls. Yeah, they there, you know, and, uh, and so, um, they persuaded me to come up and rehearse with them in the in the piney woods up there. They had a little empty house in the woods, and they rehearsed. And uh, uh, Jimette had just joined. And they lost their first uh, keyboard player to an accident, motorcycle accident. So um, I sat down and played with them. And mind you, I had played uh, country music from the time I was 11. Uh, on up into high school in West Texas. And it became so laborious for me to play Western swing, like what I call like 2-4 jazz, you know, mm -hmm. like Western jazz, that I, I just sort of started listening to the Beatles, you know. <laughs> and I got my dad's guitar out and started playing. So <clears throat> with that background, knowing some of these older songs and playing steel on them, when these guys started playing some of the Stone Ponies things and Dillard's and and Sweetheart the Rodeo, which kind of pulls from, draws from that era. 
Right. It just felt like I, I was home, you know? It just felt really good. Because you were I mean, pulling together some of the country influence yeah. with some of the, the rock and roll influence together, yeah, like, just, like those, those early bands. Something in my yeah. heart just said, you know, this is, this is good. And so I, I ended up uh, going to California, and, and uh, Kenny held his end of the deal, and we recorded one album. And we, did, we got a little bit of airplay regionally up the coast of uh, California, but uh, nothing to really keep us paying bills a lot, you yeah. know. We were playing little clubs out there and stuff. So, so the band split up? Yeah, everybody, you know, most of them started playing with Linda Ronstadt and, mm-hmm. and uh, some of that, that gang. And, and uh, I think I had a call from her and, and also from um, Amy Lou. I had a, I, 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 that would have been a fun thing to do, you know, with Emmy. With, I had recorded with, out there with Graham and Emmy, you know, with right. those two of them. But, um, but I got uh, a message from the Flying Burrito Brothers uh, manager, Ed Tickner, and he said, um, could you come out, would you be interested in coming out and audition for the Flying Burrito Brothers? And of course, I didn't know about the Flying Burrito Brothers. I didn't follow birds much at the time, you know, either. But uh, I was, when we were playing music in bands, we'd play a lot of Beatles and heavier things and stuff like that. So I said, yeah, I'd be interested in going out there. So I went out on a Saturday afternoon to the beach house, Santa Monica Beach House, and um, Bernie was still, Bernie Ledden was still in the band. And, uh, but, but he was fixing to go with Don, you know, from our band to start, start this new group. And I'll never forget, um, we were in rehearsals somewhere up in the, uh, later on and, and uh, a couple of months later, and, uh, their road guy who used to be in another East Texas band uh, came out. Tommy Nixon was his name. And he came to our rehearsal and said, you know, uh, Don and them, are, they're putting together a band. They're going to get signed, you know, and, and everything's looking good for them. And I said, well, that's cool. What are, what are, they, what are they called? And, and I thought he said the egos. So I said, well... <laughs> I guess that fast. You know? <laughs> the egos. No, I knew the rest of the guys too. Yeah. So anyway, so I got the I got the nod for the Flying Burrito Brothers after the little audition, and they really didn't need a guitarist at the time. I wasn't aware that Bernie was leaving, but at the, at that moment. But uh, the next Monday, I was on a plane going out, and they gave me a bunch of records to listen to. You know. And, and you were replacing mm. Sneaky Pete, yes. who was their original steel yes. player, and he played a lot of pedal steel that yeah. had fuzz on it. Yeah. And yeah. so did, did you have to replicate all of his uh, parts and I sounds? I wanted to, yeah. I, I, uh, I hadn't listened to him necessarily, but I'd listened to Hendrix a lot and some of the other people with, with distortion, you know, and that's kind of where I, somewhere in between there is where I ended up. Kind of gravitating to So that. how mm. did you how did you replicate that sound? Did you have uh, what kind of fuzz box oh. or how did how did you how did you do it? Well, Sneaky they had a an outfit made for him that was uh, two 15-inch JBLs in separate cabinets with long cords, and they would set it on either side of the stage, you know, okay. and <clears throat> with a showman head sitting on the floor. So I said that's fine with me. I'll use that, but I, I got a fuzz face, okay, and, and all that that you hear on the guitar and the the uh, steel is a fuzz face. Still got nice. that one too. Yeah. So, so you went on from the Flying Burrito Brothers, and so this was uh, Chris Hillman was running the band at this point from the Birds, right? And yeah. uh, Graham was Graham Parsons already gone? 
Uh, he he had left. That's okay. right. And, uh, and Rick Roberts had taken his place, and um, we uh, we were out traveling for well, let's see. I was in that group maybe nine months or so, something like that, maybe less. And we recorded. We did the David Frost show. I think there's a clip uh, floating around from that, and um, we. Uh, we ran into Graham when we were playing in the South, and he came up and sat in with us. And and that uh, meeting him sort of led to me playing on his solo records there for. But uh, uh, we were in Cleveland with the Flying Burrito Brothers and Mike Clark, who was the drummer for the Birds, you know, with in the same band with Chris. He was a real talker. I mean, he he could just talk his way into any. Venue, or you know, he knew a lot of people, and he just had that gift of gab, you know, <clears throat> a cigarette in one hand, a beer in another. <clears throat> so we were sitting watching uh, Stephen Steele's Memphis Horn tour in Cleveland at the auditorium there, and uh, <clears throat> uh, he was getting antsy, so he said, "I'm going to go see if I can get backstage and say hi to Steele's." So uh, you know, Chris said, "Well, good luck." You know, <laughs> so he went back <clears throat> and uh, was gone for an hour or so, I guess, you know, this was, I guess, while the first band was playing and all that. And um, he came back and he says, hey, Stills wants us to come over to the hotel afterwards, you know. So um, we did. And uh, he sat us down and told us about a record he was doing, a double album with four sides, all different types of approaches on each side would represent a different type of music. And um, he said, I'm doing a countryside. Would you guys come down and play, you know. And um, so we we said yes. And so rather than going back to L.A. and waiting for another weekend, we would fly down to Miami and record for like the next two or three weeks. It was primarily, we had uh, Byron Berline with us. So we, we had Byron. Player. Yeah, we had Byron. We were recording a live record at the time uh, that we met Stephen. So the live record came out, The Last of the Red Hot Burritos. And during that time is when we flew down, and and uh, <clears throat> they didn't really need drums uh, uh, or rhythm guitars. So mainly it was Byron and um, Chris and I and Rick at first, and then um, <clears throat> then after we recorded for a while, well, uh, Dallas and Stephen approached us, and uh, Chris and I, and said, "Would you two be interested in forming a group?" So and that was Manassas. That was Manassas. Okay. And they just got an induction into, uh, or we, into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Very nice. To which I said, we only have 49 states to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, back, you, you mentioned Graham and Emmy Lou. So, mm-hmm. so how did, uh, so when, when did you get the call to play on, on Graham's records? Hmm, let's see. We were just talking about that coming over. Uh, let's see. I think that the if I'm not mistaken, the first, uh, the GP record was 73. Correct me if I'm wrong. 72 and, or 73. And I believe it was a year later we did uh, Grievous Angel, okay. 74. I know that uh, Clarence had died, Clarence White had died right. during, the, during b- between those, and um, Graham was at his funeral, so that would have put it around uh, sometime 73 or so like that. Yeah. Was yeah. that 
uh, <clears throat> playing with Graham. So did you get the call because you were you had been with the burritos and he had seen you play? Is that why he called you yeah, to play on that? He made a comment. I'll never forget. He said, you know, <clears throat> to, he said if if we'd have had you in the band, uh, we'd still be together. Oh, as far as the burritos? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't blame Sneaky on that, you yeah. know, but but he liked the real purest kind of a backing, you know, for those songs. He was a lot more you know, reaching back and getting some of the classic songs, you know, from the brother uh, teams, right. you know. From, yeah. And uh, Everly Brothers, Delmore Brothers, yeah, uh, Leuven of, Brothers. Yeah, yeah, all of those. And he loved that. And he and he he did it with a plaintiveness that, kind of like Johnny Cash, you know, he's not a prolific uh, technical voice, but he's had something that reaches the hearts of people, yeah. you know, and that's kind of what... What I felt like that, and of course, uh, Chris had Chris had pointed out Emmy to us when we were playing in uh, Washington D.C. at the cellar door. They went down. He and um, and uh, Rick Roberts went down to another club and heard Emmy, and she came up, and I think she sang with us once. Or, and um, so, so Chris told Ed Tickner, you know, about her that you know she should record. And of course, then um, he was still managing Graham, so that's kind of how that rotated around yeah. and put Graham and Emmy together. I think. Yeah. So, you know, Graham's been kind of you know deified by the kind of Americana yeah. alt country, you know, movement, yeah. and uh, those two albums, you know, GP and Grievous Angel, are, are kind of you know held in you know incredibly high regard. Yeah. Being on those sessions and, and being there, uh, you know, what was, you know, Graham really like? You know, uh, we were talking about that also coming down here. We, he, he brought out uh, one of the Grievous Angels live records and where Neil plays steel. And right. he's, he's a very good player. And uh, I told him, I said, he's very polite. He came from a, 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 a good family, you know, uh, at least a, a successful family, I think, in, in the South. And he had manners, and he had a southern quality that was very appealing to people. And he's a quite spoken person. He never was a rabble rouser, you know, you know, or anything that I that I could see. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he would really, he just wanted us to play what we wanted to play. He would get together with uh, um, uh, what am I? The key, the keyboard player uh, for Elvis. Was it Glenn D. Harden? Glenn D. Harden. Thank you. And uh, they would go over and do the charts. Okay. And they'd have all charts. Man, he made elaborate charts. I mean, I've still got one that's really just like a piece of art, you know. So uh, he did let, he did chord symbols instead of numbers like we do now. So thankfully, we didn't have to change keys. I don't think ever they kind of worked that out mm -hmm. beforehand. But um, we just we just start playing the song, and sometimes it'd be. An early take, and sometimes it'd be down, you know, four or five takes down. You know, was that the first time that you played with James Burton and some of those other, you know, players of, of that kind, uh, that that see. ilk? Uh, I think I played with James with uh, with another country artist before that, and I had seen him um, in Vegas and introduced myself to him when we were there with this interim group that um, that Mickey and. Uh, uh, Kenny Rogers came to see him down. Mm -hmm. It was called Fox F O X X. Okay. So <clears throat> we saw them at breakfast one day. So I met him there, and then then I played with him with um, 
I can't remember the fellow's name. He was a, this, this artist was a steel player also and then turned singer, nice looking guy. And we did that together. And then after that, it was Graham's call, you know, yeah. to do. And we've been friends ever since, you know. Yeah, you've played with him kind of off and on through through the years. Yeah, we have. We did a, a few years back, we did a, uh, it was Graham Parsons and Clarence White tribute kind of thing, I believe, for uh, anti-drug, you know, drug abuse mm-hmm. out in uh, California. And was, uh, it, was that the thing that was taped with Nora Jones and Keith yeah, Richards? And, yeah, everybody, yeah, everybody came from every direction, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but that was that was a fun thing to do. So speaking of Keith Richards, how did you end up playing? Which uh, <clears throat> which Rolling Stones album did you play on? Uh, Exile on Main Street. Okay, and yeah. and which cut did you play on? Uh, Torn and Frayed. Okay, yeah. and how did you get the call? Was was that the Graham uh, you know Graham connection? Or? I, I think so. You know, um, I I would have to attribute a lot of that uh, to to the relationship with Graham. Yeah. yeah. And do, were, you, were the Stones there when you were recording? Or were you? No, they had uh, done a lot of the recording, you know, in France, you mm-hmm. know, at that house. Because they were in exile. Yeah, yeah. exile. Yeah. In tax exile. Tax exile. <clears throat> and so they came over with the tracks, and uh, uh, let's see, who was the producer on that? It would have been, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly, uh, engineer and the producer were both from England. Okay. And uh, wore suits, you know. And I have to look at the album and see who that was. But uh, it was just um, it was just uh, Keith and his wife, and uh, and uh, I believe I believe that was it was uh, it was yeah it was Mick was of course singing, but um, there wasn't many people there. Right. So I came in and set up, and back then uh, I didn't really use an amp like I do now. I really liked using using one, but. I would just, back then you could have tube um, equipment, you know, like uh, processors and limiters and that kind of thing where you could shape the the tone more uh, from a direct signal. So I sat at the end of the console and um, uh, Keith, it looked like they'd been to a masquerade party. Keith, I've told this story before, but Keith and uh, his wife, uh, were dressed like they'd been to one, you know. He had this swashbuckler outfit, you know, like a pirate's outfit. With, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and he, he would make a great, I mean, he could, yeah. he could have acted in any of those. Well, they, uh, they based the, uh, the the main character, Captain Jack Sparrow, is based on Keith Richards. Is it right? Yeah. Yes, it's, that's good. Yeah. And um, um, it, was, uh, it was funny because she was about eight months, seven or eight months pregnant. And um, she had on, <clears throat> it was, you know, one of those bodysuits that they used to wear, exercising and all that stuff. This was a bodysuit, <clears throat> but it was like a big bumblebee. It was like black and yellow stripes around, you know, mm-hmm. accentuating, you know. Yes. Proud to be a, a, a new mom, you know. Yeah. So um, uh, <clears throat> I said, uh, they started rolling the track, and I said, uh, do you have a vocal that uh, I can play to? You know, says, well, Mick's going to sing the vocal. So I, I saw a microphone out there in this music stand. I thought they'd been doing vocals, of course. And I said, well, I can, you know, I'm, I'm probably early. I don't have anything to do, so I'll just wait. And do says, But that wasn't the idea. The idea was for him to sing it with me. Wow. And not on the mic out there, 
but with a hand mic like it was stage all around that steel guitar. Oh my goodness. Now, that was distracting enough for me, but the funny thing is, is I just traded uh, steel guitars from a Fender steel guitar eight string with uh, two homemade levers. And the strings were really low on the fretboard and there were eight of them spaced out like a guitar. Right. I, I bought Tom Brumley's ZB, which was an 11 string, closer together, high up, with all these knee levers that I'm still learning. I'd had it yeah. for about two weeks, and and uh, so I was struggling to, uh, to to make it work. So so Mick has a handheld microphone yes. in the studio, and he's, he's kind of dancing around he's dan you, doing his dance routine around you know. And of course, the, I think there's probably some loose boards in that floor, you know. <laughs> So it was, uh, he was doing his thing. He just wanted me to feel like I was right there with him on stage. So uh, I guess it came out okay, but uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was traumatic there for, for a while. He said, he said now, and Keith said, now you can stretch out on this all you want to. And I thought to myself, I am stretching out on this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so let's see, the Stones, Manassas, mm -hmm. then uh, there would have been uh, Souther, Frey, and, and, and Hillman. Yeah, Souther, Hillman, Frey. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that was kind of one of those when all-star kind of super groups were kind of in vogue and, and yeah. you played with them for a while. Yeah. And uh, what, what happened from there? So did you go on to play? Was that when you started playing with Dolly? or? Yeah, you know, um, I, I had been called, uh, I'd started going to uh, Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa down there. Mm -hmm. And a friend turned me on to it in just a wonderful church. And that was like the Jesus Movement time or right. just there. Yeah. Southern California. Yeah. So... Um, I, I've been asked to uh, to produce some things for their new little label, Maranatha, mm -hmm. and um, which started very humbly. I think, I think it was an eight-track recorder in the back of a guy's trunk, uh, uh, Buddy King's trunk. I think he's the one that started some of the first recordings. But it was a real great time, you know, and a lot of music, you know, not only in the secular but on the on the Christian side too. So. Um, I got into doing some of the production about that time. I, I only went out a couple of times. I went out with um, uh, Michael Nesmith. We, uh, we recorded. Who was one of the monkeys. Yeah, monkey guy. Yeah. We went to Australia and did a live record out there. And uh, then I produced a steel guitar album for his company, Pacific Arts, which is called Pacific Steel Company. Yeah. It's sort of 10 years after the sweet steel, the S-U-I-T-E steel right. that they had done with multiple steel players. And yeah, so there was kind of, every cut had a different steel player yeah, on there. Yeah, we had, yeah, I think each of us did uh, two cuts uh, a piece, Tom Brumley and J.D. Manis, Red Rose, and myself, and uh, Sneaky. Yeah, so those are, those are the kind of the all-stars of, of, yeah. of the California yeah. you know, steel yeah. guitar scene. Yeah, it was. So. Yeah. yeah, and uh, <clears throat> so, um, uh, Debbie Boone. I went out with Debbie Boone for a, a short time, and I went out with McGuinn and Clark. No, McGuinn and Hillman, because Clark had left when they were doing the M, the, the, that trio thing. And I enjoyed that a lot. I got to play steel and um, uh, guitar, and Tom Mooney was the drummer, which I really enjoyed playing with. He was, uh, what was that group in... Uh, he was in a group with Todd Rundgren, I think, back then. What was the name wow. of that? You recall? I don't recall. Um, yeah, we're going too far back, huh? So anyway, <laughs> it was really a lot of fun. 
And uh, then I kept producing, you know, the gospel things. And uh, then we uh, we did the Ever Call Ready. Album. Okay. And we just wanted to do that. What happened was we uh, we had played. I think we had played some things up in the where the, the warehouse in Sacramento, and um, the pastor there um, was uh, Louis Neely, and um, he and his wife. Uh, I mean, that church just grew and grew. You know, oh. just like all the ones at that time that were really just teaching teaching the word instead of yelling at it, you know, yeah. and stuff. And so um, uh, we, uh, we, we had uh, planned to record this, I think, at uh, Bernie's studio. Bernie wanted to get a new console, and he was going to gift the analog console, console to the warehouse, which wanted to do a little studio there. So, so in that exchange, they said, well, why don't you guys come up here and do some recording? You know, we'll just so give you our room. Just to tell us who who was in Evercall ready. Oh, okay. It was Chris Hillman. Yeah, from the and uh, yeah, and Bernie Ledden from the Eagles or Flying Burrito Brothers, wherever. And uh, David Mansfield, who, uh, gosh, he's he's an arranger. He does a lot of video and film film work. So I played with Bruce Hornsby in the Range for yeah. a while. He was in that band. Yeah, and I think yeah. didn't he play. Uh, with uh, the band that backed up Dylan for a while, the what did they call that? Um, can't recall that the band's name, but he was in a band that uh, that backed up Dylan as well. Then uh, Jerry Sheff from Elvis's band. Yeah, is that all of them? Yeah, I think and me. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we uh, we went up and recorded and just. Just for the fun of it, and just to just contribute back something as a tithe of music back to the Lord, you know. And um, somehow everybody except David went out, and we traveled with it after that. Did some festivals, I think, and went overseas and played, you know, England. And uh, we ended up playing in Norway. Couldn't understand anything. Couldn't read any signs, you know. <laughs> but people could speak English, of course. So. But we had a great time with that, and uh, and after that, um, there was a spell there where I, uh, this young man, my first son, came along, yeah. and um, I stopped traveling, and I took a little day job for a time because things were slow at the at that moment. And uh, <clears throat> Rick Vito, a friend of ours, um, uh, guitarist. Uh, he uh, had been playing with Dolly, and he was leaving to go with, uh, I don't know, John Fogarty or, or Jackson Brown, or I forgot who it was, maybe Fleetwood Mac. He's played with all of them. But um, he suggested that she call me for playing guitar on the road. So they did, and, uh, and I played with her for three years, 86, 7, and 8, I believe, is what, what we did. We did some touring across the water. Al, we're gonna we're gonna take a break, okay. and we're gonna talk more about uh, Dolly, and then we're also gonna talk about some of your gear. Great. So we're back with Al Perkins, and we were just talking about uh, about the mid to late '80s working with uh, Dolly Parton and how that came about. Yes, uh, um, Rick Vito had uh, recommended me for that group, and um, I had played steel with her in L.A. on uh, a couple of things. 
forgotten which record that would have been, but uh, I know one of the songs was Old Flames. Okay. And um, and uh, I met her there, and so he, she's got a pretty good memory, so she may have remembered my name, you know, when he mentioned it. And so uh, she needed a guitar player, so uh, I came and played with her uh, for about three years. We uh, traveled abroad where I met uh, um, <clears throat> another friend uh, uh, who builds incredible steel guitars, uh, Noel Anstead, uh, the Anapeg guitar, which I've been playing for about 15 years now. And um, uh, after, after that ended, uh, um, see, I had already moved to, no, uh, I had moved after the tours with uh, Dolly. The reason being, <clears throat> we came up to Nashville to do some pre-records with Nashville musicians and um, and players to you know some people from her background. And uh, during that time, the drummer Paul Lime had uh, he and his wife started looking for houses up here, and was telling me about an area that to look for. You know, if we were thinking about coming, and sure enough, <clears throat> ended up moving here. You know, both Paul Lime and I, we were probably the second little wave reaching Tennessee from California. <laughs> now there's going to be a tsunami. You know? But um, that uh, that got me into um, Tennessee. And uh, at that time, my old bandmate, uh, Jim Ed, was uh, in charge of um, uh, Warner Nashville. And uh, so he put me to work doing a few sessions here and there. And, and um, one of the things I found out about Nashville is they don't particularly cater to uh, the, the West Coast style playing, you know. My, the people that I listened to were a little different style than here. So that was a little bit of problem there. So you know. what, what did they not like about the, the West Coast style? Well, I think, uh, in my humble opinion, I think the West Coast style had a little bit more rock edge to it maybe you know mm -hmm. like the buck owens kind of thing and right a little more aggressive a little, a little more, more twangy it was still could be pretty you know and jd manis is a west coast player jd and tom rumley both had come to nashville before and couldn't really get anything you know happening so they they went back out there you know and uh <clears throat> so during that time after dolly's uh um stint um, I got a call from Emmy Lou, and she invited us to come over to uh, her house for a, a New Year's uh, celebration, or is Christmas New Year's time. And uh, so went over there, and uh, and she was thinking about putting the, the group together that ended up being called uh, uh, the Nash Ramblers. Uh, just to, yeah. to back up a little bit, yeah. she had kind of been known for uh, for having the hot band, which right. originally was a, a group of you know <clears throat> players like James Burton and Albert Lee and Ricky yeah. Skaggs, and it had been kind of this louder electric band. Yeah. Uh, and and so all of a sudden she was kind of making an about face, and she was putting together an all acoustic band. Yes, yes, and uh, she uh, she invited uh, me and Sam Bush, and uh, uh, let's see. Seems like Roy Husky Jr. Right. Um, so, and then there was a. There, we all talked about the group idea, you know, and, and everybody was going for it. But 
we were trying to audition for another spot or two, so we went through that that period of time. Uh, and shortly thereafter, we uh, we found uh, Randy Stewart, who goes by the name of John Randall mm -hmm. now. So that completed the the group, and uh, we had a we had a uh, we we did five seasons in four years, and um, ended up uh, through '95 or till '95. So of, of touring, of touring, yeah. And we did one live record. We were the first group to uh, record in the the newly or being renovated Ryman Auditorium. Yeah. So yeah, this was the Emmylou and the Nash Ramblers mm -hmm. live at the Ryman. Live at the so, Ryman. Yeah. so this yeah. now, just for for those of us who have been to the Ryman, you know, recently, it's it's been uh, it's been cleaned up a lot. <laughs> yeah. So at, at the point that that you you know recorded there, what kind of state was the was the Ryman in? It was still in. Uh, and, and reconstruction and uh, refurbishing. So the fire department would not allow us to use the balcony for the concert. Okay. In fact, um, they didn't want us to set people back underneath the balcony either. So they, in the filming of it, they darkened that out a little bit so that you see people to a certain point, but then underneath it's just sort of shadowy. So <clears throat> I don't remember how many people were there, but... Uh, we we did that recording and that was that brought on uh, a lot of uh, music back to the Ryman. You know, it's just been a steady flow. Right. So that, that that was kind yeah. of the the impetus for yeah. for people to you know to, they they thought about you know revitalizing yeah. rebuilding the Ryman and doing mm -hmm. concerts there again. What a great venue, you know, for a, for you know if you don't want to do a Coliseum gig, that's just probably one of the best venues yeah. you know you can do. It was made particularly for um, acoustic music or the spoken word, it was a church, of course, you know. Right. And pews are still there, and all the pews are wooden. Some of them, you know, curve to fit the curvature of the building in, inside. And they, uh, everybody can get a good good seat. But, <clears throat> and the wood, to me, uh, the way the thing is constructed, is just very, very favorable to, to acoustic music. I think it's sort of like some of the other... Um, Carnegie Hall and, and some others in the nation that were built along that era for uh, projecting the voice and, and acoustic music and orchestras. <clears throat> but it's like when we were, in, we played Carnegie Hall once with Manassas and we just overplayed it. It was just nothing but echo and, right. and slapping off the walls and stuff like that. And we didn't have the sense to turn down, you know. But, um, the Ryman can, I think the Ryman can probably be overplayed um, volume-wise, but it's a beautiful, beautiful setting. Yeah. And the, in the Nash Ramblers, you were playing acoustic music, so so you were playing dobro and banjo? Yeah, yeah, yeah and the guitar occasionally, you know, an yeah. acoustic guitar whenever needed. Yeah, that was uh, that was really fun. Uh, we, uh, we interpreted her electric songs acoustically, basically, and we had to know at any given moment uh, a set consisting of maybe 130 songs or something like that. Wow. <laughs> so, we, you know, a lot of them were familiar to our ear. And, and of course, we would rehearse some, too. But, uh, uh, you know, if, if it's her prerogative, you know, to, to come up with a song that fits the audience. And so we're ready to do it, you know. Yeah. Was Emmy good to work for? Oh, yeah. She's just a jewel. Yeah. She's just one of the best. I, I, don't, I don't think I've worked with any... Any group or any artist that, uh, for any length of time, that 
that was really out there, you know. Yeah. I mean, most of them were just very uh, easy to get along with and, and wanted you to play what you felt you wanted to play. Yeah. It helps. Well, <clears throat> what are some of, you know, of all the albums that you've played on, what are, what are you most proud of? Like if you had to list five albums that you felt like these are the best examples of my playing and they yeah. really showcase what I do or what Why? I've done. I hadn't thought of that. <clears throat> that's an, that's amazing. Uh, uh, you got any ideas over there? <laughs> well, what, what about the you know the, the live the Nash Rambler album? Well, that's got to be one of them. Yeah, that'd yeah. be the, for the Dobro thing. Yeah, and I think that the in that vein, the Ever Call Ready record was was really a lot of fun. Okay. What about for your your pedal steel playing? Um, probably. Um, you know the uh, Pacific Steel thing is yeah. is only two songs, but that's uh, that yeah. kind of gives a little bit of the edgy thing and and um, uh, early on, you know the Graham Graham things were yeah. were good. What about uh, for your yeah, electric guitar playing? Yeah, electric guitar. I, I really was proud of the the the, the recording uh, that we did for the last of the Red Hot Burritos. That was yeah. with the Telecaster, uh, Stratocaster. And uh, Eddie Kramer, you know, from Electric Ladyland, was the engineer for that. Wow. So he was out in the truck, and, and we were, I said, I want to sound like him. <laughs> we weren't playing like Hendrix, of course, but, uh, but uh, yeah, so he, he, was, he was a very good, good engineer. See, there we, we put together a, a quick list. So you had the yeah. Emmylou with the, uh, the, the Nash Ramblers, mm -hmm. Live at the Ryman. You had the, the Graham Records, the GP and Grievous Angel. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Ever Call Ready. I guess Manassas was half come in there somewhere. You know, yeah. that's got a lot of different styles in there too. The, yeah. the uh, <clears throat> we did two albums. Most people know of the first one, the double album, but we did a second album too. And uh, the second album was recorded like three times because each time, but that time we were a group, you know, and we were contributing to songs and people writing and things like that. But the label only had Stephen signed, so there's not enough Stephen on this thing, so they put more Stephen in, so we re-record some things. and So we recorded uh, down at Criteria, down in my North Miami, but we also recorded, uh, oh gosh, uh, out in a uh, uh, record plant out in San Francisco. Okay. Recorded some there and recorded some in L.A., probably the record plant, I think, too. I, I can't remember exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that would probably be a, another album that we yeah. would consider. So, <clears throat> so what have you been up to lately, you know, touring-wise and playing? Yeah, we, uh, I've been just doing the studio thing right now. Uh, the pop music is, is probably um, at a state now with country music that there's l l less steel guitar mm -hmm. and things going on. Dobro, you know, I still do uh, the dobro and occasional banjo, you know, yeah. part for people. And I uh, have a little studio at home so I can record on projects that are sent in and and, uh, and keeps me from having to travel on, on that end of it. Yeah. And you've, you've <coughs> sat in with the Blues Project and you've, you've played with yeah. some different bands, you know, around around town. Yeah, Blues Council. Blues Council. Blues Council, yes. I play with some. And uh, we have a little group for fun called High Power, H-I-P-O-W-E-R. Yeah. And uh, one of the fellows has been out with an illness for a while, so we're, we're kind of uh, 
uh, on hold for that. But that's just a fun kind of thing where we'll play songs that we like to play, you know, and hopefully somebody else likes them too. (laughs) Cool. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about your gear? Why don't you Why don't you grab that guitar? All right. And this is a uh, quite the interesting piece. Yeah. So uh, not many times do you see a a a tele you know style body that's made out of multiple pieces of wood. It looks like a butcher block. So tell tell us about this guitar. Uh, There was a a man named uh, Dave Evans. And uh, he came from the south. He was out in L.A. whenever I met him. But he had uh, built around 30, maybe at that point, maybe 20 or 30. I don't know what number this is in the, uh, in, the in order. But um, he built them for uh, various musicians. I think we went through a few of them that yeah. ended up with them. Uh, Albert Lee, uh, yeah. Bernie Ledden with the Eagles. and that. Yeah. So Bernie Ledden used his... You know, on songs like "Peaceful, Easy Feeling" yeah. and all those those early, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, e- that's eagle that, albums. Yeah, you, you hear a lot of that. It's kind of like a pedal steel, but with a guitar attack. Yeah, you know, and um, um, I think Freddie Weller had one. Right. Uh, Skunk Baxter had one, and uh, we we thought of a couple more, but there yeah. wasn't a whole lot of people ended up with them, and. Uh, but they were sold primarily through Fred Wallachie at Westwood Music, I think. Yeah. And um, hello to Fred. And uh, so I put this uh, this ichthyus on it. It's a, it's a it says Jesus is Lord on it. So did you get in trouble, you know, with with that mm. sticker on your guitar in the yeah, you know, <laughs> in uh, the seventies? This is a controversial piece. Uh, uh, we were putting together the Souther Hillman Puree Band, and a couple of the guys came from us, came from Manassas, uh, Paul Harris and the keyboard player and myself. And um, uh, we uh, we were rehearsing and things. You know, I I came to meet the guys, the other guys, you know, J.D. Souther I'd, I'd run across, but uh, Richie I hadn't, you know, and he was, he was into some other things at the time, you know, the Eastern mysticism things and uh, he saw this and he just said I don't know if we want this guy and you know I don't know if we want him in the band or not you know I don't know what the actual conversation was but he he was a little leery of me being in there Jesus freak kind of thing right so uh, but um, later on uh, of course he he accepted Christ and and uh, and he's a pastor up in Colorado. And I know Richie was a member of Poco also. Yeah, yeah. in Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. And that, and, uh, but uh, he had me bring this up to uh, uh, one of their anniversaries up there for the church and because he, he had people had talked to him about the group and stuff like that. So he wanted me to bring this guitar up there, you know, one time. And so we, uh, we brought it up there and let him uh, show it off, you know. So if, if I'm if I you know if I'm correct on this, the, you know Dave Evans would would basically make this butcher block body and mm-hmm. it had a B bender in it, yes, which of course is a mechanism that's attached to the strap button, mm-hmm. and when you move that, it pulls this the hub on the other side. And yes. It's got this huge plate on the back, mm-hmm. and we're gonna we're gonna take the plate off and and show you the uh, the guts uh, later, 
but uh, you know, you pull down, you put, kind of push down on the neck, and it yeah. pulls up the V string a whole step. Yeah. And so this was kind of like if you were a country rock guy, you you kind of you kind of had to have one. That was kind of the the thing. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Clarence White was the the guy who really uh, he and Bob Warford, um, <clears throat> along with the help of um, uh, Gene Parsons. Gene Parsons' father had a machine shop, and uh, so Clarence and and uh, Bob Warford were friends at the time. And they, they have some of the prototypes of this, which had a false back. The mechanism, they didn't cut into the body like this one, but they had a false back, uh, probably, you know, three-eighths of an inch in there, right. something like that, enough for the lever to work. Right. And it got pretty heavy that way. But uh, Bob Warford, and uh, he played on, like, uh, some of the, the uh, Linda Ronstadt Right, uh, tours. He, he and, played on the dark end of the street. That's yeah. his famous uh, kind of uh, B-bender yeah. solo on that. If you if you yeah. look that up. Uh, and then uh, of course Clarence was with the Birds yeah. and in the Pioneer with that style. Yeah. <clears throat> Evans was the was the first one to put the mechanism inside the guitar because mm -hmm. what you were you know alluding to was yeah. the fact that all the other mechanisms were outside the body and there had to be a shell yeah. or something to cover up. Yeah. But Evans was the first one to put the entire mechanism inside the body and route out you know wood. Now Gene Parsons was making also one that was in, in I have one made by him but right. with the same throw what I call throw I. Seven millimeters, I think, is what I ended up with the distance that this travels. Mm -hmm. um, when they first came out, they had a, I mean, maybe, you know, what, a, a half an inch or something like mm -hmm. that. And so the neck would go, you know, yeah. it looked like you were waving right. at somebody. But, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I guess he still uh, installs those in, in Telecasters and, yes. and even acoustic. I mean, they've developed a way to put the B-Bender and acoustic. So it's, it's a way for a, a guitarist to emulate a steel guitar, basically. Yeah. You know. So why don't you uh, show us, yeah. you know, why don't you play, gonna, play a lick or two? I'm gonna sit, try to sit and do this. Now this thing is is uh, designed, is this, is this microphone still? I know, it's, you're great. Yeah, it's designed to work off the weight of the guitar while you're standing. So I'm gonna try, I meant make a mistake or two, but. I'm going to try to play it and just push it down, pull it back up. But show some of those kind of faux yeah. steel kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to hold it with with my uh, the back of my. Things like that, and uh, you can, uh, you know, a lot of people have stronger fingers than I do, but they'll they'll grab they'll grab uh, these strings and pull them all up at one time. Mm -hmm. But there's a see if I okay. So you're using the bender and you're doing yeah, and you're bending. With now, your I could never too. do it, do with yeah. all the strings, but you yeah. can do that, you know. And uh, oh, uh, you can. Um, uh, I know I heard uh, Jimmy Page with one of these, and he has, I've forgotten the song that he does, but he does, does a, 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 just simple things. Like that. 
and all that. And um, see, I'm trying to think of something that they incorporate in a solo or something. And our little group does a, an old uh, Flat and Scruggs songs. Uh, uh, I think I'll go across the ocean. And I solo. Like it, you know, when I first saw Bob and uh, and uh, <clears throat> those guys playing it, you know, I cocker. How is how's he doing that? You know, but how's he getting it, that strange yeah, sound? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, all kinds of uh, things that you know. People like James Burton, they don't need these things. They can do anything. And, you know, make it <laughs> but sound. you're just trying to catch up with <laughs> yeah, them with the, yeah. with the mechanism. Yeah. So this uh, this neck that looks like a late '60s, early '70s uh, Strat neck. Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, you're right. Um, <clears throat> whenever these were made, of course, uh, as uh, Zach had alluded to, that you had to find your own neck. And so um, I had a friend that uh, that built amplifiers for for uh, work with Leo Fender and. His name's Bob Reese. We got one of his current, uh, this is called, uh, he started out with a Marvel amp, which is lower wattage than this. This is called an AP40 watt. But he um, had gone to Rickenbacker by the time I got this and uh, designing amps for them. And he got me into the shop. He knew all the guys still at the, at at Fender. the shop. At Fender. And said, uh, they just let me go in and browse through like I go shopping for a neck, you know? And so I... I wanted something close to the old 61 Strat neck that I had on, on the other one. So uh, I found this one, but it had this 70s big headstock on it. You know, I was kind of wanting a smaller, smaller one. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> I didn't think about it at the time, but uh, this being a Stratocaster neck, it's rounded on the front. On the heel. On the heel of it. <clears throat> and the... These bodies were designed for a Telecaster, because it's a Telecaster yeah. design. And a Telecaster is flush. It has a square heel. A square heel. Yeah. So, I don't know if the, <laughs> you can pick that up, but I... We'll take a shot of it. I whittled a piece, literally, of hardwood and, and placed it in there just to give it a little more strength. Yeah. Not that it would come loose. I mean, it's got four bolts on the, on the back. Yeah. But <clears throat> Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. Well, t tell us about your uh, your pedals. Yeah, that you're using. yeah. This is a this is a uh, early versions <laughs> of Visual Sound here, and I've got a, a setup just like this over in England. That when we go over there, I don't have to now worry about it and getting cleaned right. up and all that. And I've got uh, the H two O, which is the chorus on one side, and echo, and. That's a that's a nice effect. The echo is great. It goes all the way out to, not sure how many milliseconds, but it's uh, I use it for just a little dress 
Yeah. Dress up a little bit. Now this uh, and, the overdrive unit here, the yes. uh, the Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, yes. Were you using that on the uh, on the lap steel? I do. Yeah, with I really the, like the distorted that. One? And uh, mm -hmm. a lot of times, what I'll do with uh, with the guitar is I will back off of the. I can I can get an overdrive uh, through through the amp, but I'll set it where it's it's got enough volume to be fairly clean. But then I'll use the the right side of the um, Jekyll and Hyde, and uh, just just to give it a little little egg. And that, and if you really you know scream it, you know you just can you, you can one. either turn that and off and turn this one on. Which is very similar there, but when you combine the two, you get. Yeah. And um, then uh, I've I've got this little tremolo thing here, but uh, uh, I like I like that for slow songs. Most people use them for slow songs, but I've heard them speed up and just use them for an effect. I've, I've yeah. heard James do that too, you know. Sweet. <laughs> well, tell us about the amp. So, so Bob Rissy was, uh, he originally was employed by Fender, and then he went to Rickenbacker, yeah. and, then, uh, and, and then he started the, the, yes. the Rissen amps. And so tell us about this amp that you're using. Yes, this is the latest uh, model that he's uh, made. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably, this one's 40 watts. He can build them all the way up, you know, whatever wattage. But he, he started off making them like 15 watts and they sounded like a Marshall stack, mm -hmm. you know? And you could get any combination of speakers like uh, uh, eights, you know, multiple eights or uh, tens or whatever you're, you you prefer. So what, and, what speaker do you have in this? Uh, this is a, this is an, an, an antique Celestion. Okay. Yeah, it's an old one. And uh, this the soundboard tilts slightly up so that if, if you're sitting on the floor, you still get a little bit of raise with the right. with the direction of it. And um, I've played his amps, gosh, ever since the 70s. And um, even when they were all solid state, you know, I did, those were solid state Rissons on the stage with Manassas. Okay. And um, then on through, and a lot of, a lot of the other guys in Southern and Furet bought the solid state combos. But people got to thinking, well, uh, this sounds good. He could make them where they had a little pump to them, you know, like a compression, like a tube will do. But uh, they look in the back and say, well, where's the tubes, you know? Mm -hmm. oh, we don't want solid state. So, well, he just kind of joined the crowd and said, it's easy to make the, uh, the tube, you know? It's, right. It was harder to design one that sounded like a tube, you know? So, anyway, uh, he's, uh, he's still in business and... Uh, and uh, I, we, my son and I, um, have a rare version that we're hoping he'll start start making again for studio people, and steel guitar players and people that want a really uh, good sound. That we use the JBLs with them, you know. Uh, they're like 60 watt, and uh, they're all tube. 
change the tone with the different, like 6L6s sound different than the 6550s, so on. But they're that's what I've used in the studio. When you hear me in the studio with steel guitar, it's always an STA. It's That's a number of it. It's uh, He made 25 chassis, which we have managed to get four of them, I guess, now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Collecting them. Yeah, I keep one, a 220 volt over there in, 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 the, in England. Yeah. So, yes, it's... Uh, yeah, thanks for yeah. mentioning that. Bob Reese. Yeah. Well, Al, really appreciate you coming down to the True Tone Lounge. This is such a treat. You know, you have such a, a, a rich history, and mm. uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all. This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.